as we've gathered together this morning, certainly a tremendous blessing on the part of our great God in heaven to us to show about us His glorious handiwork as we see the seasons and their change about us, recognizing our God's in control of all of it. And isn't it interesting and also amazing to consider how blessed He has been toward each of us, the consideration of the health that we do enjoy, the physical possessions that are ours to also have about us each day. And as we come together with our Christian brothers and sisters, our family. In so doing, to be edified and encouraged and to magnify the name of the God of heaven. To make statements and comments like that lead us, in fact, into the opening aspects of the lesson that we will consider for a few moments this morning. To think about the nature of the Lord's Supper. As we gather in a few moments about this table to commemorate some powerful and beautiful thoughts historically, we shall find that in our study today, there are many aspects of the Lord's Supper that should be a very meaningful, special, and real part of our life. I would ask you to think then with me again first about the nature of worship in terms of an introduction, and then more carefully look at the passages in which the Lord's Supper is described more carefully. First of all, isn't it a true statement that the church is a worshiping body? That is to say, one of the things... Perhaps if you were to ask a hundred people at random, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say the word church? It might well be worship for some of them. For they think about an organization that comes together as it assembles, it gathers, and thus proceeds to partake in various acts that are called worship. Well, inasmuch as that statement is realistic, notice with me some passages where you and I are encouraged to be of that mindset. Was it not Jesus who himself said in Matthew 4 verse 10, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. With regard then to worship, it is incumbent upon us to offer that very great aspect of worship to God. He is worthy of it. He deserves it. He is awesome in every respect. He is in fact of some tremendous character that he has looked favorably upon us. And we have the privilege of offering worship to him. Might we also notice passages in which, for instance, there was an angel on one occasion who told John, Worship God. We immediately note in that that angels are not to be worshipped, nor are any other aspects of reality. Only God is worthy of worship. Maybe that leads us to the very text that was mentioned earlier in our very time together today. There was an occasion when Jesus himself, in discussion with a Samaritan woman, made this memorable statement. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We understand then that our worship is not an arbitrary time to consume an hour or so a week. It is a vital and essential aspect in which we are able thus to offer to God the very thing that he demands and the very thing that he is so worthy to receive. However, as we consider worship more carefully, we also note that it did say in truth. We know that that means in accordance to the will of God, for our Savior declared in John 17, 17, that it is God's word that is truth. And hence, we see that there are certain activities, acts if you will, that God has thus specified to comprise worship. Man is not at liberty to remove any of those that he has specified, nor is he at liberty to add to that list those that he has not. We know the New Testament only lists five in its completeness. 
those are, of course, singing as much as Colossians 3.16 tells us that we're to teach and admonish one another as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We know that we have the capability of prayer to beseech God for His favor and blessings and to thank Him for all the goodness He has bestowed toward us. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 8. We also know that we have the remarkable opportunity to contribute, to give financially according to that which we have been prospered, and in so doing, to support the work of the church in this modern age and in this world. To note Paul's wonderful statement of 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Then there's also the entrance into the very Word of God itself as we study and turn our minds to the very thing spiritual and divine in character. Was it not said of Paul in Acts 20 verse 7 that when they came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, desiring to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Acts 20 verse 7. Thus Paul preached. He delivered a didactic discourse for such is the Greek thrust, and in so doing, taught the specifics of the will of God. Today, that of course is our desire as well, in times even as we are currently engaged in this morning, to be refreshed and reminded of the truth of God by virtue of those statements made by a proclaimer, an evangelist, a preacher of that truth. But finally, there is the observation of the Lord's Supper. That of course shall be the prime subject of our discussion this morning. But to consider that Lord's Supper in a rather dramatic and beautiful fashion, we certainly could at this point note many questions have arisen through the centuries about the Lord's Supper. When is it to be observed? How often is it to be observed? How is it to be observed? What are the specific details of the nature of its observance? And that list could go on and on. We obviously shall not be able to consider all of them in the limited time we have. Our goal, our objective, is to paint a rather beautiful brushed stroke picture in our mind of the significance of the Lord's Supper and its meaning to those who are the children of God by faith. As we do that today, we shall begin our study by going back to when our Savior instituted it and remind ourselves of the glorious scene that took place then. Following that, we'll look at those passages that give it an impression for you and me still continuing until this day. With those matters said as an introduction, I ask you to return with me to the Thursday of the crucifixion week. Our Savior had entered Jerusalem on Sunday of that week, as recorded in Matthew chapter 21. As he entered into the city of Jerusalem, he rode, of course, on the back of that donkey, and he entered in a very humble and very quiet way, at least for his own measure. However, the people that were there proclaimed him in some sense as a king when they strode palm branches before him. But as Jesus entered that city, it's an amazing fact that though they acclaimed him so highly on that occasion, six days later they'd nail him to a cross. Oh, how fickle the character of man can often be. Notice, though, that as he entered that city on that occasion, he taught many things throughout the next day or two. Specifically, on Tuesday, he held before the human family the very nature of the fact of a resurrection, that there's life after death, and what's more, that it's important to pay taxes to those to whom taxes are due. On many occasions, they thought that they had stumped our Savior, but they never did. They failed on every account, and by the time we reach Thursday of that week, we are now in a position that this is the first day of unleavened bread, Mark 14, verses 12 and following, 
it was that time of year when those who were devout Jews were to observe the feast of unleavened bread. We remember the first occasion of that observance involved the slaying of the Passover lamb just as a reminder of them of when they came out of Egyptian bondage and slavery centuries earlier. On this occasion, Jesus was dutiful to keep that Passover. Peter and John, he sent forth to prepare things, to make ready so that he could observe it with his apostles. And they did so. As Peter and John went forth, they found an upper room in Jerusalem. And the man gave that to Jesus so that they would be able to observe the Passover. With everything being ready, the evening time of that day came. It was the occasion in which now it was opportune and appropriate time to actually observe it. The Passover lamb, you might remember, was slain in that particular day. And as such, they were to eat of that with that unleavened bread and various herbs. And that was to be a remembrance of them, a memorial for them, of how good God had been to bring them out of Egypt. On this occasion, we might note then that for centuries, the Jewish people had observed that Passover. From the time that it was instituted in Exodus chapters 12 to 14 until this, some 1,400 years had passed. So we see then that they were very thoroughly familiar with how it was to partake of the Passover. However, some interesting things were to happen on this observance of it. Things that they had never seen before. Things they'd never heard before. Things that would in fact rest in their mind for them that they would never forget the significance of this occasion. Notice with me some of the passages as they herein appear. First, we've already noted some of the elements that were involved. They had been told in Exodus 12, unleavened bread is to be a part of this observance. They were also given information that it was to be eaten quickly today and none of it's to remain. In so doing, these apostles partook of it hastily with our Lord. And as we approach near the end of that Passover celebration, here is where the unusual events began to happen. In fact, in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, as well as Luke chapter 22, verse 19, we note that Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Now, they had already eaten of unleavened bread as a course of the celebration of the Passover. And yet here Jesus, apparently near the end of that celebration, took this piece of unleavened bread, again offered prayer for it in thanksgiving. He proceeded to break it and then gave to them. But notice the tremendous statement he made, This is my body. Now, no doubt they understood this was not the traditional feature or factor involved in the Passover. Here is this teacher, our one who is our leader, taking this unleavened bread and now he says it's his body. Or note Luke's account, which even states it more carefully. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. No doubt those apostles must have been a bit concerned and questioned the character of what Jesus had just said. Some of the things that we can, of course, consider as well are these. In noting the facts and the features, I've listed some scriptures that are the very ones that we just noted. This bread. We should remember it is now the unleavened bread, for that was the very attitude and aspect of this feast of unleavened bread. In fact, for a period of seven days, the Jews were not to have any leaven amongst their house anywhere. 
and this being the first day of unleavened bread. That was the kind of bread employed here. And of course it would become very symbolic of the purity and the unadulterated character of the nature of Christ's sacrifice. But Jesus wasn't finished. In addition to the bread, somewhat later in the meal, and apparently this was just after it was completed, Jesus took a cup. This cup had in it fruit of the vine. Jesus also offered prayer for this and distributed it to them. And yet again, he made a rather profound statement. That particular statement, in fact, to note Matthew's reference to it in Matthew 26, verse 28, reads as follows. Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It must have been a breathtaking scene to reflect upon how those apostles must have responded. The bread, and to that he said, this is my body. And now with regard to the contents of this cup, he says, this is my blood of the New Testament. And that word testament means covenant. This is my blood of the New Testament, and what's more, it's shed for many for the remission of sins. It is absolutely clear then that these matters place this consideration on a much higher plane than merely that Old Testament observance of the Passover. The remission of sins is herein referenced. I'd ask you to think with me interestingly about what transpired after it. For Jesus made one other statement that we ought not forget. Mark's account reads it as follows, I will drink no more of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's clear too that as Jesus made a statement like that, he had in view for them to understand that this kingdom of God was soon to be reality. The glorious goodness of that body of Christ that would be founded on the day of Pentecost, that was only some a little over 50 days later. And on that occasion, Jesus said, I will drink of this in that kingdom. It is to be remembered then that those apostles must have no doubt allowed this to settle very clearly in their mind. For when that day of Pentecost came and in the texts thereafter, we notice how that this Lord's Supper became a very vital part of their observance of worship. In fact, on the very day that the church began in Acts the second chapter, Verse 42 of that text reads, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. The breaking of bread on the very first day the church began. That was not a reference to a common meal. That was the breaking of this bread is a reference to the nature of the Lord's Supper. In Acts 20, verse 7, a text to which we referred earlier, as Paul was on the third missionary journey, hastily desiring to arrive at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Nonetheless, in Troas, he tarried seven days to meet with brethren, and it expressly says, and when the, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. They came together most especially for the purpose of the observance of the Lord's Supper. It's to be noted how significant that memorial became for them. It was not a trivial observance. It was not an observance fraught with the character of just taking time. It was meaningful. So meaningful that in fact, not only those in Troas, but later in Tyre in Acts 21, they also would do the same. It's important for us to note that the church in Corinth, several decades later, Paul had to... Correct some abuses that had arisen in their observance of the Lord's Supper. It's easy then to see 
that the Lord's Supper is to be a very vital part of our worship as well. And not just that. It should be very meaningful for each of us individually. What would that set of meanings be? What ideas should rest upon my mind and yours as we partake of the Lord's Supper? What thoughts should be in our head? What particular means should be used to partake of it? Those are all very fair questions. Questions that in fact deserve at least brief responses and considerations this morning. Would you look with me at some of the features of the Lord's Supper? Some of the aspects of it that we ought not forget. First of all, may we say from 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, as there the Apostle Paul addressed that church in Corinth, he, we would see in the next chapter, would have to correct their abuse of the Lord's Supper, for they had turned it into something far different than what our Savior intended. But notice with me in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the blood of Christ? And furthermore, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? A word of great significance there is that word communion. And on two occasions, here Paul says that this Lord's Supper involves communion. What does the word communion mean? It means to be partner with, to experience fellowship with. And thus we see that in regard to the Lord's Supper, you and I and all Christians who faithfully participate in it, are enjoying a majestic communion with the very Son of God Himself. Did He not again say that I will not drink of it new until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God? It is a way then to experience a tremendous fellowship with Christ. But not only that, with other Christians as well. For again, Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, plural pronoun, we bless, you and I have that wonderful capability of, with other brothers and sisters in presence, to engage in this activity that magnifies God, but in which we are able to enjoy fellowship, not only with His Son, but a communal fellowship with others of like-minded, precious faith. That's the very interesting feature of this Lord's Supper, isn't it? And what's more, isn't it amazing to think that all around this globe, there are Christians today participating in this Lord's Supper. In fact, around the world, there are many who have already participated in it today. In Europe, it's already close to sunset. As far as China, it's now almost well into Monday morning. Many brethren have already participated in it, and you and I, as we shortly shall, shall enjoy fellowship with them and with Christ as we participate in it too. Some of the passages that we could certainly list remind us of the fact that this Lord's Supper is a tremendous source of strength. Now, might we note it's not physical strength, it's spiritual strength, in which we, in our mind, recall and recollect very singularly what Jesus did for me. The fact that without Him I'm lost, undone, and without hope. But with Him not only do I have hope and can stand right with God, but there is a fellowship and a body of believers there to encourage me and to be there to support, to weep with me when I weep, and to rejoice with me when I rejoice, Romans 12, 15. These thoughts tell us then that there's great edification personally by virtue of participating in the Lord's Supper. But this attitude of humility that's present is one where it's not a matter of exaltation of ourselves. We understand that in sin we didn't deserve one drop of the blood of Christ. 
but yet God in His favor toward us permitted us to enjoy fellowship with Him, and this is one great memorial of that fact. But in addition to this attitude of communion, might we emphasize a bit more fully the fact that this is not for physical strength. It is true it involves bread, and it involves liquid, fruit of the vine. And on other ways and in other times, we may ingest that for physical nourishment. That is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. In fact, that's the very attitude that had corrupted the scene in Corinth's soul. As we read 1 Corinthians 11, do we not learn that what they had done was to begin observing the Lord's Supper in conjunction with an ordinary common meal? And in so doing, some would bring their dinner from home, and as they had plenty, others didn't have anything. And thus, there were some that were hungry, but others were satisfied and full. Some had plenty to drink, and others didn't. Paul, in fact, sternly rebuked them in Corinth. That's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's wonderful to come together, perhaps at other times, and enjoy a fellowship meal, a dinner on the ground. But the Lord's Supper is not that. It is a time that is involved in spiritual nourishment, not physical. It's a time that we draw communion and fellowship and mutual strength from the Savior as well as from one another. And in so doing, it is a marvelous thing indeed. In fact, one of the statements to be noted very interestingly in 1 Corinthians 11 is this one. May I read verse number 30? In light of their abuse of the Lord's Supper, Paul said, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you. If the time comes that you and I fail to participate in this Lord's Supper appropriately and in accordance to the plan and will of God, our spiritual livelihood will suffer. We must be spiritually sick if we fail to understand and appreciate what that Lord's Supper signifies. And if thus in our participation of it, that's the means by which we're doing it, we are in spiritual jeopardy. We're spiritually sick and weak. And as that verse closes, he says, and many sleep. You see, in that kind of state, if it lingers onward, spiritual death may be the result of it. Separation from God by virtue of sin, and if that continues then and we physically die in that state, we're lost. You see, the Lord's Supper is thus one thing that is a measure you and I can use to help us know whether we are standing right with God. As I partake in this, am I aware of what it means? Am I aware of all the significance attached to it and the things to be seen in it? That, in fact, leads us directly to their next point. For a third element of this Lord's Supper is, of course, the word remembrance. On two occasions in 1 Corinthians 11, and of course our Savior had said similar matters in Mark chapter 14, notice He said, This do in remembrance of me. That was with regard to the bread. Then with regard to the cup, again, Jesus said in verse number 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And we partake then of the Lord's Supper. One of the elemental basics of it is that of remembrance. To think back to that scene at Calvary. When at old Golgotha, the very Son of God, gave His life as a sacrifice for humanity's sins. And in so doing, that blood itself is such that as it was poured forth from His side in John 19.34, this fruit of the vine symbolically represents it. 
and with regard to his body that was so mutilated and beaten and scourged. This unleavened bread represents it symbolically. You see, we must never forget what happened at Golgotha. It is the very central core element historically in all of history. That time when the very Son of God was put to death, innocent though he was, guiltless though he was, no guile had ever been found in his mouth, First Peter 2, 22 and following, absolutely without sin had he lived, Hebrews 4, 15. And yet, for you and for me, he paid the ultimate price, giving his life for us. May we never forget that event, and this is a memorial that forever brings that thought to our mind. This do in remembrance of me. In fact, you might notice on the front of the table, those very words are etched. May we never allow those thoughts to then escape our mind as we participate in it. We ought not then be thinking about what's for dinner today, what happened yesterday, the ball game that might be played later today. Those are not a part of what we should be pondering when we partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. As we consider the thrust of that idea of remembrance, may we not forget that the entirety of the New Testament is based on the ultimate attitude of what happened then. For remember, Jesus said, this is the blood of the New Testament. All of the gospel ministration and all of its blessings and all of its promises and all of its hopes are ultimately grounded on what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Salvation from sin, hope of eternal life, all of that was grounded firmly in what our Savior accomplished at Golgotha. It's no wonder then when we think about the thrust of it, it's such a significant event in worship, in the life of the Christian. We should look forward to those opportunities to partake in this Lord's Supper. It is that meaningful to us. But might we quickly say that not only should we look backward in remembrance, Paul even made another rather dramatic point. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, in addition to looking backward, the participation in the Lord's Supper looks forward as well. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. And that word show in the Greek means proclaim. For as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you do proclaim the Lord's death till He come. In other words, in addition to an aspect of it that takes us back to the scene at Calvary, it is an open evidence and witness that each time we partake of it, that was a historically real event. It was not a myth nor made up in any way. And each time we partake of it, we announce openly and publicly to all who are there to witness we believe firmly in what happened at Calvary. And what Jesus did then was the means by which sins can be forgiven. We proclaim until he comes again his death. You and I have then the blessed opportunity to be an ambassador each time we partake of the Lord's Supper. To proclaim openly to all that we are witnesses, being Christians, of what happened there at Golgotha. And that we are going to be testimonials to him each time we partake of it. We proclaim until he come, his very death. It's no wonder that Zechariah could prophesy in Zechariah 13, verse 1, even many hundred years prior to the Savior's coming, there will come a time when a fountain for cleansing will be opened outside Jerusalem. And when that Roman soldier pierced the gentle side of Jesus and forthwith came forth blood and water, that fountain for cleansing had been opened. You and I today are still the recipients of that fact. 
It's a glorious consideration to then think of all that this Lord's Supper means. Communion, not physical in terms of its ultimate thrust and objective. We've noticed that it looks backward in terms of remembrance, looks forward in terms of proclamation. But there's one more point that we might make before the lesson will be finished today. It has to do with a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. This is the text that Brother Fred read for us earlier. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. As you and I ponder and look upon the nature of that verse, perhaps like me, you've heard some who've made statements about that verse, and you have listened and watched various responses to the responsibility that is there attached to it. It is significant that we note very carefully that word unworthily. Might we notice very interestingly, as I have tried to emphasize it there on the, on the wall, that you and I can easily confuse that word if we aren't careful. He did not use the word unworthy, U-N-W-O-R-T-H-Y. That, you see, is an adjective. It would modify the whosoever. And if that had been the word that Paul used, you and I would then need to, as some way possible, partake of this Lord's Supper worthy. That is, we'd need to be worthy of it. May I suggest to you that is impossible. There's not a person alive who is deserving of one drop of the blood of Jesus. We cannot possibly be worthy individuals of partaking of it. That's not the word Paul used. He used the adverb unworthily. And it modifies the verbs drink and eat. When you and I partake of it, we need to partake of it worthily. That is to say, to partake of it in a matter accordance to the truth that has been revealed in relation to it. And Paul, what does that identify? How do I partake of it worthily? Let us look at the next verse. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And that last phrase helps us greatly, doesn't it? Not discerning the Lord's body. To thus not discern the Lord's body and the participation in it is to eat and drink unworthily. And Paul very clearly notes that there's great amount of difficulty arising from that. So much so that he says that it's damnation and judgment in verse number 29. When you and I thus partake of the Lord's Supper, we must strive to do so worthily. That again means to discern the body and blood of Jesus. Not to partake of it simply because someone else does. Not to partake of it simply because we think that might be the right thing to do. Those are not discerning the Lord's body. When we partake of it, we must clearly understand what happened to Calvary. Understand that the bread itself is representative of the precious body of Christ. For he said, this is my body. We further must understand that that blood that he shed is symbolically represented by the fruit of the vine. Those are what it means to discern the Lord's body. For that word means to distinguish, to clearly appreciate. And in so doing, if we fail to do that, note again the stern judgment that rests upon us. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. 
If we ponder just a moment and then think just briefly some of the things that we have seen today concerning the Lord's Supper, isn't it then a marvelous reflection of the goodness of God toward us? But on the other hand, there's responsibility upon our part to partake of it worthily. That again doesn't mean that I must live a sinless life, for I cannot do that in the sense of sinlessly perfect, and nor can anyone else. For John said, If any man say, I have not sinned, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. Rather, we now know that that means, as an adverb, the manner in which it's partaken. And so in summary today, in terms of the Lord's Supper, we've seen the beautiful communion that it involves. The appreciation of fellowship with Christ and with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's more, that its prime objective is not physical nourishment. It is spiritual nourishment, spiritual edification. As such, we remember and look back to the scene of the cross. Never forgetting that great event that transpired that is the central feature in all of human history. What's more, we testify, witness, if you will, and proclaim until he comes again by our participation in that, that Jesus was historically real, that he died for my sins and for yours, and that we look forward until the day he comes again. And finally, we learned also that we must partake worthily. An adverb that identifies that as we partake of it, we do remember and we do proclaim. We don't take it lightly and we don't participate in it just because we think that's the right thing to do. It's the truth of God. This morning as we thus analyze ourselves, might we notice yet again in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, he said, but let a man examine himself. May we each examine ourselves carefully and critically in light of our short participation in this Lord's Supper. Am I so living day by day that I am not bringing reproach upon what this stands for? Is it such that I am not able to participate in it worthily because I'm going to remember back to the scene of the cross and what happened there? It is a challenging thing, but it's encouraging. For if we do so amiss, we bring judgment and damnation upon ourselves. Today, are you a Christian? Is it such that you could proudly wear that name and participate in this with all the homage and glory that it deserves? If you've never become a Christian, today be a beautiful day for that to happen. This day, the 4th of November, 2007, could be your spiritual birthday. We'd be more than honored to aid you in putting into the burial pool that old man of sin, letting you rise to walk a new creature in Christ. If we could assist you in doing that, we would only ask that you let us know that, that we might help. If you have become a Christian but have not been true and faithful to the requirements of the Lord, maybe you've allowed the Lord's Supper to be less meaningful than it should be. Come back to that first love in the sense of rededicating that life to Him and rejuvenate that life to Him. If we could help you in either of those ways today, let that be known to us if you would while together we stand and while we sing.